0: Hi, you're listening to the new episode of Talking France, a podcast by The Local, in which we bring you up to date with the big talking points in France and help explain how the country and its people work. We have another jam-packed episode ahead featuring the aftermath of the World Cup final, including why French President Emmanuel Macron was accused of being offside. We'll tell you how your finances could change in France now that the budget has passed and introduce you to the world's richest man. Yep, he's a Frenchman. And we'll also hear about a French woman who is perhaps the most stereotypical Parisian ever on TV. Did you know that France has 12 different time zones? We'll explain why. And of course, it's Christmas. And in France, that means rows about religion, seafood, banquets, and only one day off. And to help you digest this new information, we'll end the episode in good Gallic spirits. Stay tuned to find what I'm talking about. I'm Ben McPartland and I'll be joined by the team at the local France, editor Emma Pearson and Genevieve Mansfield. Before we get stuck into the meat of this podcast, we need once again to kick it off with the football. France, of course, lost the World Cup final in dramatic fashion on Sunday night. Now, given that the bars in Paris, in towns and cities across the country, were packed to the rafters, Some 24 million tuning in at home. It seemed there wasn't much left of this boycott that was announced before the tournament. Emma, we all know what happened in the football. France lost. Very dramatic, sad, on penalties to Argentina. But we spotted a couple of things that perhaps other viewers might not especially in France yeah I
1: mean most of the headlines afterwards once we've got over the the disappointment of the football obviously were about Emmanuel Macron and France's star player Kylian Mbappe Macron was there for the final he was there for the semi-final as well actually we know that he's a big football fan and after this defeat he kind of came down onto the pitch and he tried to console Mbappe who bless him he just looked absolutely gutted I thought when you saw it on telly it just looked pretty normal you know Mbappe was kind of slumped on the pitch and Macron was obviously just trying to make him feel Better, But it has given some pretty funny photos afterwards of Macron sort of hugging Mbappé and uh, holding his head, holding his neck. There's been some headlines about uh, a Macron-Mbappé bromance. But, you know, Macron, he just he does that to everybody. He's just a really tactile guy. It's like when he meets world leaders and people start talking about a a Macron-Biden bromance. It's just what he does.
0: Look, I don't know. I've played in some big football matches like work five-a-side tournaments and lost. (laughs) And the last thing you want is your boss coming over to try and console you. I think the images of Macron celebrating Mbappe's goals were incredible. Like He just goes absolutely wild. You know, they're all over Twitter and, you know, there's some people criticising him for, you know, not being, you know, having the kind of decorum of a head of state. But I think that's fair enough. He's a genuine football fan, isn't he, Macron?
1: Absolutely. And I mean, I have to say, if by some terrible accident I became the president, I would absolutely use my position to score match tickets and then go hang out in the dressing room afterwards. So I found it very relatable, really. Yeah, we
0: think he was just in the wrong end. He should have been in in with the French fans and not the VIP seats. And then it would have blended in.
1: Exactly. Never watch sport in the expensive seats. There's no atmosphere. You want to be in the cheap seats with the mental fans, with their faces painted, banging a big drum with a big cockat on their head. It's much more fun.
0: Exactly. Now, he has been accused, though, I mentioned in the intro of being, um, he was referred to in one newspaper as being offside. The press or several critics, you know, they accuse him of being glued to Mbappe. He tried several times to console him. I think that the general criticism was that he just got a bit too involved. He gave a speech in the dressing room, but we should say after they won it in 1998, Jacques Chirac, the then president went down to the dressing room. He was kissing the players and, you know, giving a speech. So it's not, it's not, you know, strange for presidents to get involved.
1: At least Macron is a football fan because there's some very funny footage, isn't there? Of Chirac in a pre-match when they're announcing the players' names, like trying to shout along with the players' names, but obviously not actually knowing any of the players' names. So at least Macron genuinely does know and love his football.
0: Yes. Exactly, the French team came back to Paris on Monday evening to a kind of lukewarm reception or jubilant. What should we say? Oh no,
2: jubilant! I think
1: jubilant. Was- there
0: was plenty of their people in Place de Concorde to greet them, Jen. You weren't one of them. Jen, what were you doing during the World Cup final?
2: So we did an early Christmas celebration with my partner's family. And I think I was with the only French people that actually stuck to the boycott. (laughs) Wow, you didn't see it? Nope, I didn't watch it. None of us watched it. Although we would hear the neighbours screaming every so often. And I would sneakily check my phone to see the score.
0: (laughs) Wow, probably the best World Cup final ever to have taken place, Jen. And you were uh, having Christmas dinner. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Right, we should move on to perhaps more serious talking points that have been in the news. Emma, the final act of the government this year, now that Parliament's broken up for Christmas, was passing the budget... Yes the budget I kind of thought this had passed long ago but just tell us more about what's going on here.
1: Well yeah the budget was introduced to parliament way back in September so you could be forgiven for thinking that but it finally passed this week so it's taken 3 months to, to get it through parliament it's a truly epic process Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne has had to use the emergency power that's known as article 49.3 10 times to get this through parliament. It's basically spent the fast 3 months going back and forth uh, in the parliament the opposition parties have blocked it at every stage she She's had to use this article at every stage, and every time she's done that, one of the opposition parties has tabled a motion of no confidence in the government, none of which passed. So it's basically just been a massive mess brought about by the fact that, as we've said before, the government has no overall parliamentary majority. So obviously the budget itself is important, but... This process has been so long, drawn out, and so chaotic that I think most people are just laughing about it now. I spotted a wine from Corbiere down on the south coast yeah. that was called Le Neuf 20 Vampas partout, which was the, the 49.3 wine that... Passes everything, goes with everything.
0: I see. Now, look, just remind listeners, what's in this budget and how will it affect them next year?
1: Well, probably the thing that's going to have the biggest direct impact on people is the price shield for gas and electricity prices. So at the moment, utility bills are either frozen or capped at a 4% rise, and they have been uh, all year. But that expires at the end of this year, and the new budget does allow for prices to go up, but there's still a price shield. and It's a maximum 15% rise for both gas and electricity prices so people will see their household bills rise next year it's about an extra 20 euro a month for the average household but there will still be controls and they won't see spiraling prices like we've seen in other countries around europe so that's probably the the main thing there's also a lot of pay rises for state employees there's increases in benefits there's increases in grants for certain groups there's extra funding like funding for low-income families to get help with bills there's funding for an extra eight thousand police officers and there's one little thing which actually wasn't in the original budget but was tacked on as an amendment and this is a change to the scheme known as mon confirmation which is the training budget that employees in france get and it's particularly useful for foreigners because you can use it to get free french classes but it seems that they will no longer be free and employees instead will have to contribute something towards any training that they do through this but we'll get more details of that in the new year
0: is this what you took advantage of to get some French classes? It is, yes. Okay.
1: Yeah, I, I love the scheme. It, it was great. I got a bunch of free French classes, but it seems like the employees will have to contribute a bit towards it next year, which is a bit of a shame, I think.
0: Interesting stuff. I think it's time to bring in our politics expert, John Litchfield, to get his end-of-year report on a strange six-months year in French politics and how things will go in 2023.
3: Well, it's been a very weird year, hasn't it? You know, it started with people saying that Le Pen was kind of menacing, and that uh, Zamor was menacing, and that Macron was in trouble. And he won re-election, not with quite the the sort of vote he had last time, but pretty good all the same. And uh, then he screwed up in in the parliamentary election. He seemed, I think, I'm told, and other people are saying that Macron went through a bit of a kind of dip, um, in terms of his spirits, mm, uh, in terms of his. Mood after that presidential election, exhausted by the election, exhausted by the Ukraine war and his efforts and that. And he really didn't get involved and and kind of delayed appointing a prime minister for a long time. And partly as a result of that they they didn't entirely lose the parliamentary election but they didn't entirely win it either they ended up with the biggest number of seats but not a majority so that threatens to make his second term a bit of a kind of muddle all the way through so far they've managed to get through the budget the financial proposals for next year by using the emergency powers which which the uh, constitution gives them and they can do that on all financial bills forever but they can only do it once in each year each parliamentary year or anything else so he wants to get his his reform programme, especially his pension reform, through. He can get that through with this Article 493 emergency powers, but that's the only one he can do. After that, he will be Armstrong.
0: On we go now each week in Talking France. As listeners will know, we like to introduce some French personalities who've been in the news. Now, France is home to some incredibly wealthy individuals. One of them pushed Elon Musk into second place in the world's rich list this December. Who is he, Jen? Tell us more about him.
2: So he is Bernard. Arnaud, or the chairman of the French luxury goods giant LVMH, uh, which is the parent company of luxury bl- brands like Louis Vuitton, Tiffany & Co., Marc Jacobs, and many more. He has a net worth of $184 billion, and he came out on top this month after Elon Musk's Tesla shares dropped in value. So Arnaud is 73 years old. He was born in the northern French city of Roubaix. And when he was 22, he actually started his career in the family-owned construction company Ferret Savinel. went on to become a chairman in 1978 and expanded and diversified the firm list into real estate development and then luxury goods, which is what his empire is now best known for. So in comparison to the second richest man, uh, Elon Musk, Arnaud keeps a relatively low profile. He isn't personally active on social media. And apparently he sold his LVMH jet after the use of private jets by celebrities started being tracked on social media earlier this year. Although apparently he now leases a private jet. So you're still pretty unlikely to bump into him on the bus.
0: That's interesting. You mentioned he's from Roubaix, Roubaix. Uh, in the north of the country, often tops the list for the most poorest part of France. But he's become France's richest man and the world's richest man. Now, who else are we talking about in France this week? Fans of Emily in Paris will know this name. She's Philippine, Leroy Beaulieu, I really hope I pronounced that right, otherwise known as Sylvie in the Netflix series. Jen, I know nothing about Emily in Paris, but tell us more about this character.
2: I am unashamedly an Emily in Paris fan. And yes, this French actress, Philippine Leroy Beaulieu, I also hope I pronounced that correctly, plays Sylvie in Emily in Paris. Or you might also know her as Catherine Barneville, the wife of the main character, Matthias Barneville in Call My Agent. And she's been in the headlines recently, so with the new Emily in Paris season coming out this week, Filipina's been back in the spotlight, just like she was a few weeks ago, actually, when the new season of The Crown appeared. And in Emily in Paris, she really embodies the stereotype of the Parisian woman, so thin, chic, Cigarette smoking with a sort of above it all attitude. And she even described her character to AFP as the Asterix who will not let you pass when she's confronted with quote unquote the type of American like Emily who wants to conquer the world and thinks they know how to do everything better than the rest. Now, Asterix is a callback to the comic book series in France, Asterix and Obelix, if you're not familiar. And her character also has a pretty notably open love life, which has been quite the topic in the French press recently, as there have been more films that are devoted to the love lives of. Of older women, which has been a bit of a shift, you know, trying to view older women as objects of desire instead of just young women. While she has not reached Marianne Cotillard level of fame, she does seem to be turning into Netflix's go-to French actress in the Anglophone media, so we can probably expect to see more of her.
0: Fair enough. Emma, do you watch Emily in Paris?
2: I got about
1: halfway through episode two and then I started shouting obscenities at the telly, so no. I love Call My Agent though. Call My Agent is absolutely fabulous and I highly recommend it to anyone because it's not only a really fun series, but it's kind of, it gives you a bit of a crash course in like famous French celebrities, so it's good for your French culture as well.
0: Call My Agent is called something else in French. 10 person. I've never seen either of these series. Okay, let's move on. Now we like to move around the country on Talking France and discuss some of the places in the news. This week, we're going to Guadeloupe, 6,000 kilometres away from France because Miss Guadeloupe was crowned Miss France at the weekend. Emma, Guadeloupe, part of France? <laughs> Yes, it is.
1: Guadeloupe, it's a tiny island in the Caribbean, it's kind of between Puerto Rico and Barbados, and it's as much a part of France as Lyon, Bordeaux and Mont-Saint-Michel. And that is because of how France's overseas territories work. So france outremer mer as it's known, is a legacy of colonialism. France used to have a, a massive empire that went right the way from the Caribbean to North Africa to the Pacific... These days, obviously, most of the former colonies have won their independence. But there are some territories that elected to stay part of France, either because they're economically dependent on France or they have close cultural ties or both. So there are five what's called départements outre-mer. There's Guadeloupe and Martinique, which are in the Caribbean. There's the islands of La Réunion and Mayotte, which are in the Pacific. And there's French Guiana, which is a country in South America. And these are counted as part of France. They are départements, like counties. They're just like Dordogne or Paris. They elect MPs to the French parliament, and they're administered directly from Paris. And then there are also what they call collectivités d'outre-mer, and these are places that have a little bit more autonomy. They have their own local governments, but policies like defence, for example, are controlled from Paris. So the collectivity d'outre-mer, they are French Polynesia, including Tahiti. And that is why at the Paris Olympics, the surfing will be in Tahiti, not notably close to Paris. Um, you've got Wallace and Fortuna, which is also in the Pacific. You've got Saint-Pierre-Miquelon, which is just off the coast of Canada. saint martin saint Barthélemy uh, in the Caribbean again. And then you've got Nouvelle-Calédonie, which is in the Pacific. And Nouvelle-Calédonie recently voted against independence in a referendum. These collectivities, they tend to be like pretty small, small islands. And they usually depend pretty heavily on subsidies from France in order to keep their economies afloat. But it's because of these overseas territories and the status that they have that you get some of my absolute favourite bizarre facts about France. Go on then. Okay, see if you can work out how these are true. France shares a border with Brazil.
0: Well, that's easy because you've just mentioned French Guiana, which shares a border with Brazil.
1: Absolutely. Well done. So you'll remember when there were fires in the Amazon... Macron was talking about it and the president of Brazil sort of kind of tried to give him a bit of a slap down and say you know mind your own business and Macron was like well it is my business because this borders my country. So another one the closest country to Australia to the east is France.
0: Oh don't know about that is this to do with Nouvelle Caledonie?
1: It is yes if you go east from Australia you would think New Zealand would be the the obvious one but slightly closer to New Zealand is the tiny tiny island of Nouvelle Caledonie. It's a very beautiful looking uh, sort of Pacific island you know palm trees lagoons whatever. It's called Nouvelle-Calédonie because apparently when the explorer James Cook landed there, he thought it looked exactly like Scotland. I've been to Scotland. I don't remember many lagoons or palm trees there. uh... He
0: he clearly had never been to Scotland, surely.
1: (laughs) Clearly. Uh, And the final one, France has 12 time zones.
0: Yes, okay, so this is to do with all the overseas territories right around the globe.
1: Exactly, yeah, they go all the way from the Caribbean on one side right through to the Pacific, so they go through many, many different time zones and there are, in fact, 12 of them.
0: Okay, Emma, thanks for all those really interesting facts.
3: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax
2: and think about
0: In France, well, it's Christmas everywhere, I guess. But the trees are up, decorations are up, some Christmas lights are up. There's even Christmas trees in schools, Jen, which surprised you.
2: Yeah, it did, it really surprised me. When I first moved to France, I was working as an English teacher in French schools, and I remember walking in one day and seeing a giant Christmas tree in the school lobby, which I thought was not allowed because of the strict rules surrounding secularism in the public sphere, including schools. So laïcité, or secularism, is the principle of religion being separate from the state. And basically what Laicite says is that religious displays are not allowed in state buildings, so that covers schools, town halls, and government offices, but does not include places like a town square or private businesses like shopping malls or, of course, churches or private homes. So at Christmas, state buildings like schools and town halls can put up some decorations, like Christmas trees or light displays, which are not considered religious, but they cannot put up a Christmas crib or a nativity scene, uh, since that's an explicit religious image relating to the birth of Jesus Christ.
1: Yeah, and of course, you know, you do see nativity scenes all over France at this time of year in public spaces, you know, shopping malls tend to have them, most small towns have them in their town square, I was in a town in the Alps last year that had a one with live animals in it all uh, milling around the little crib where Jesus was you had real donkeys real sheep whatever it was very cute but where they shouldn't be is in the town hall or the mairie and it seems that a modern Christmas tradition is that every year at this time of year There is always at least one politician. It's usually a far-right mayor, but this year it's Eric Ciotti, who is the new leader of the centre-right Le Republicain party, who we talked about in last week's podcast. And every year there's somebody who puts up a Christmas crib in a mairie, basically in order to try and create controversy and to try and flag up what they call France's Christian traditions, even though really France is a secular state.
0: Indeed, it's an annual row, basically, isn't it, pre-Christmas. If you want to know more about France's complicated relationship with laïcity... We have plenty of articles on our website, but we also have a previous podcast episode from March 29th titled Could Foreigners Face French Tests? And Has France Changed Since 2017? In which we interview a specialist on laïcité. It's well worth a listen. We have a huge back catalogue of podcasts, actually, with some great information, facts and news from all over France. Jen, when it comes to Christmas, uh, France is a secular country, as we've discussed. So why is Christmas even a holiday?
2: That's a great question. And there are actually quite a few Christian holidays in secular France. And the answer really is one of practicality. So by the time the policy of secularism came into effect in 1905, there were already quite a few public holidays that were connected to Christian festivals, including Christmas, that French people really enjoyed. And it seems that no politician has been brave or stupid (laughs) enough to tell the French that they have to give up their days off of work in the name of secularism. Since 1905, several secular holidays have been added to the calendar. So for example, the workers' holiday of May 1st or memorial events for both of the world wars, but the religious holidays have stuck around too. And for Christmas specifically, from from what I've noticed personally, it's perceived in a relatively secular way in France, kind of like Thanksgiving is in the US. You'll see people of all faiths and backgrounds setting up trees and giving gifts.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're not complaining that Christmas is a public holiday in France or even really any of the religious public holidays in France throughout the year. As you've said, there's quite a few of them. But it always feels that, you know, maybe that is the reason Christmas is less of a big, big deal in France because they only get one day off. Emma, is that fair? It is less of a big deal here, is it?
1: Um, I think, Personally, I think it's less of a big deal than it is in the UK. Certainly, and you get uh, other countries around Europe, like Germany, for example, who make a much bigger deal of Christmas than France. It's probably not like the main holiday of the year like it is in some other countries. But you know, it, it's still an event. Um, French people stop work. They stop. They swap presents. They go and visit family. They eat and drink a lot. So it's certainly a special festival. In the run up to Christmas, you get a lot of special events, so like Christmas markets in most towns. There's often like festivals of light, special parties. But Christmas itself, which is celebrated on the 24th, is mostly regarded just as a day like for families to meet up, have a nice meal, swap presents, especially for kids, that kind of thing. There are some good traditions that I like in uh, in France, though. The 24th, the traditional meal, is the, the Réveillon de Noël, which is a huge spread of seafood. The tradition is that you go to midnight mass and then you come back and you start eating your fish in the middle of the night. But I think less, fewer and fewer families are actually doing that these days and are just moving the seafood feast to a more normal time of... Um, day. And then on the 25th, people often eat a a roasted bird, like a goose, a guinea fowl, a capon. Some people have turkey. Although a lot of families have their own sort of festive food traditions, there isn't really like a, a set meal that everybody has in perhaps the same way that we have in the UK. Although, as you said, the 25th is a public holiday. A lot of boulangeries and patisseries open up in the morning, so you can buy your desserts and your bread. And in the big cities, quite a lot of restaurants and even some shops open up too. And then on the 26th, back to work for everybody, it's not a public holiday unless you live in Alsace in which case you get an extra day off.
0: Just confirm, boulangeries could be open on Christmas morning?
1: Yeah, most of them uh, them are in small towns. Families go out and buy their their huge dessert for the Christmas feast and, of course, some bread.
0: And, of course, this... Year Christmas is on a Sunday, so Monday, not being a day off, it's kind of straight back to work for a lot of people.
1: Yes, yeah. I mean, like, some offices tend to close for a bit longer, but it's not a public holiday. You know, shops and stuff like that will be open as normal on on Monday.
0: Mm, We need to live in Alsace. Now, Christmas in France is slightly different to other countries. Is there anything that stands out for you guys about Christmas here, Jen?
2: Yeah, so I'm not exactly certain how common this is throughout France, but one thing that I really like about the French Christmases that I've experienced is how common it is for everyone to give and receive books. So people tend to not really give the hugely expensive gifts, which might be a bit more common in the US, but they do give you plenty to read while you're relaxing and enjoying your holiday. Emma. I really like the Christmas hampers that French mayors give out to older people. I think it's a really nice example
1: of French solidarité in action. The way they actually work, it varies slightly depending on the commune you live in. But in most places, if you're over 60, you get some kind of gift from the mairie. And it's usually a hamper full of like really nice food like pâté, cake, chocolates, plus some wine. And if you live in a small village, quite often the mayor themselves will bring around your hamper. And it's a quite a sweet tradition,
0: I think. I mean, you mentioned solidarity. The government also gives out what they call prime de Noël don't they in the run-up to christmas which is basically kind of a payment a grant uh, a one-off subsidy for the poorest families
1: yeah exactly just to help with the cost of christmas a little bit and make sure they've got something uh, to buy some presents for the kids that kind of thing so yeah solidarity again it's nice
0: okay i mean look i feel as though we need to talk more about this seafood platter that you mentioned before i'm just not having it you know into i'm going to upset quite a few french people here but in terms of a christmas eve big dinner you know the, the big feast just seafood platter i've just like i've had it once and I just remember all these kind of slugs and shells that you're digging out with something sharp and then you're like, you know, I know they're dead already, but you just feel as though you're chewing them to death. And I just like, this is not my idea of a Christmas feast, like bulo, you know, bulo, the, yeah, know, the tiny little ones.
2: yeah, They're, they're just not worth the
0: effort. Like you're just digging it out of its shell, the poor fella. Big no, bulos are the big ones, big orno are the small ones. Oysters. Delicious. Maybe with a bit of brown sauce. I don't know. Like brown I could, sauce. I could do them, but... You know, I normally have a curry on Christmas Eve, but I just... The seed food platter, I'm sorry, it's just a lot. Like you say that, you know it saves time cooking you know you serve up well, a seafood platter this is platter, the key point but you isn't spend it? all your time getting the little fellas out of the shells
1: this is the key point you say it's too much effort for the seafood platter but this is my favorite thing about it that if you're the person who cooks it's very very low effort you go to the fishmongers you get your fish you throw it on a plate you get some bread which you've got from the boulangerie mayonnaise job's a gooden all done whereas if you go for like the british style turkey with all the trimmings the person who cooks spends like half the day in the kitchen and just ends up sweaty and knackered so yeah uh, shellfish every time for me
0: well, I spent half a day cracking open crab's legs and and shells and stuff. Jen, are you a seafood fan?
2: I like seafood. Like, I'm into the crab. I'm into like the the more easy things to eat but i really really do not like the sea snails the bouleau they really gross me out i'm not a fan
0: it's for me it's just survival food for me like you know it's something i'd expect to eat on colanta or you know on a desert island if there's literally nothing else around but for some reason it's become this delicacy i really don't get it feel free to email me and explain the delights of seafood emma you haven't convinced me but on the good side of christmas in france we have kind of alluded to it but I do enjoy the kind of low-key aspect to Christmas here. And I know different parts of France will celebrate Christmas in different ways. I've kind of only really got a kind of a Parisian view on Christmas. But in terms of like, you know, the amount of presents that we buy for kids, for, for friends, like it just feels though it's a bit more sensible, less commercial in France, you know, when it comes to food, presents, family, you know, it's maybe it's just because it is only uh, one day off and it feels like it's less of a, a big event and we just kind of crack on towards the new year, no?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think this is maybe just a... French difference anyway but there's certainly less heavy drinking than we get in the UK that, um, you know, in the UK is mostly just an excuse for people to get ridiculously drunk, that doesn't really happen so much in France.
0: Indeed, and I don't feel as though after a Christmas in France I need to kind of get a gym membership for the next January, you know to lose some of the weight I've put on, whereas I do, every time I go to England, it's like I come over stone heavier.
1: Well that's because the seafood is very good for you, so this is another way to...
0: I'm not having it. <laughs> ...keep
1: on with it. The, the British tradition I have completely ditched is quite christmas pudding i never liked it but i've just you know i go for her. a bouche de noel is a much better option for your dessert in france
0: thanks guys now let's end this podcast in high spirits yeah that was a pun a bad one but it's time for a digestive a french liquor that is served at the end of dinner jen on behalf of readers what are the best french digestives to serve up
2: okay. you're an expert aren't you <coughs> So I have to start with a disclaimer. I'm maybe not the best person to recommend French digestifs because I find them to be a bit strong, but here we go. So basically, a digestif is a drink that you have at the end of a French meal like Ben explained. Usually it's an alcoholic beverage, but there are some non-alcoholic alternatives like an herbal tea, for example. Digestif come in many different varieties based on the French region. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with quins. So in the southwest, you're likely to drink a cognac, which is brandy made by distilling locally made wine, usually coming from the Bordeaux area. And also, cognac is kind of like champagne, so the name is geographically protected, so it can only come from the cognac area. And then if you travel north to Normandy, you might have a calvados after your meal, which is a cider brandy from Normandy, and usually it's made from apples, though sometimes pears. And in Brittany, Normandy's regional rival to the south, you might have what's called a lambig which in reality is quite similar to the Calvados, and it's also liquor that's made from distilling cider. And then there's some herbal liquors. So there's the Benedictine, which is also from Normandy, and it consists of a mix of 27 flowers, berries, herbs, roots, and spices, but don't be fooled, it was not actually made by monks. (laughs) And then there's also Chartreuse, which comes in green and yellow versions, and that's quite popular in eastern France. And in theory, all of these drinks are supposed to help you with your digestion after your delicious large French meal, and to be very good for your health, but I'm not so convinced.
1: Yeah, I'm afraid scientists do agree with you, Jen, that not only do digestives not aid digestion, they actually slow the process down. They... Some scientists in, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I was disappointed too. But some scientists in Switzerland did a study back in 2010 and they found that actually having a digestive can slow the process of digestion by up to 50%. And the reason for this is that alcohol blocks the secretion of gastrin, which is the hormone that stimulates the, the gastric acid, which helps you to digest. So yeah, they don't actually work, but they're really nice.
0: Are you joking? So those six Calvados I had to wash down my fondue last week didn't serve any purpose at all.
2: Oh well, you enjoyed them, so that's uh, that's I a purpose served. Yeah. Why not? Have
0: you got a favourite digestive?
2: Uh, no. I mean, I'll go with the herbal tea personally.
0: <laughs> herbal tea, Jen. Oh my goodness, <laughs> Emma.
1: Yeah, I like Benedictine. Actually, I went up to Fécamp in Normandy, where where it's made, uh, and tasted it for the first time a couple of years ago. And it's got loads and loads of herbs in it. It's really nice. And it used to be marketed as a medicine. In fact, some quite a few of the herbal ones were originally marketed as like a medicine that were good for you and then boring insistences that you provide some actual proof for these kind of things came along, so they stopped advertising them as that, and now they're just drinks. But they kind of taste like they would do you good.
0: Yeah, you mentioned one, gen there. Chartreuse is really, really tasty. It comes in green and yellow. I didn't realise it comes in yellow. It definitely leaves you looking yellow if you drink too much. I think it's like 50%. Alcohol.
1: Yeah, a lot of these are quite strong, so (laughs) we'd maybe say approach with caution. Yeah,
0: please, drink with caution, obviously. Uh, We do have an article on our website, actually, that goes through France's best digestives around the country. It's well worth checking out. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode of Talking France. It's not the end of the series, however. We'll be back next week with a look ahead to 2023, so be sure to join us again next week.
3: Thanks to all of you for listening.